You guys have actually uh, been in a series and set of practices about community. The teaching side of things for that series is now over, but they wanted me to tell you there is one more practice for your communities in the coming weeks. Uh, today, tonight rather, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew, which means I'm afraid it's me again. If we haven't met yet, like they were saying, my name is Josh. I used to work here. I planted a church called Van City. It's still there. Now, uh, I reappear here once in a while to, it's beginning to seem, teach divisive topics and weird parts of the Bible. <laughs> so, in fact, uh, when John Mark invited me this time around, the exchange unfolded thusly. <laughs> He's just saying, oh, you know, how far into chapter 14 do you want to teach? I was like, oh, I'll do 1 through 12. It's the beheading story. So, spoiler alert, there's a beheading in tonight's text. And he said, lol, with all cast. I guess that means he was really cracking up at that. He said, great, you're on. And then immediately, wait, how did you get beheading? You always get the weirdest things, as if he doesn't know what's coming, you know? <laughs> so here's the thing. I want to begin tonight's teaching with something of a disclaimer. As was disclosed in that text exchange, tonight's story features a beheading. There's also incest. It's not great. So I says to myself, I says, <laughs> I don't want you guys to get bummed every time you see me. So I decided to pad some of tonight's more upsetting passages with a few palate cleansers. <laughs> I want to make sure that it's, so far it's been working great, but I want to make sure it works. So here's an example. I'm going to try it out. You guys will get the idea. So I'll be like, oh my gosh, the Bible has some truly horrific scenes in it. I don't know if you guys have, have read this thing. It gets really weird. Even David and Goliath, which is a story that we tell children, is deeply upsetting. There's a little guy dragging around this huge severed head. In fact, he takes it around with him for a while. That's probably really disgusting. Here are some cows that have been shampooed and blow-dried. <laughs> See? It's not as bad. All right. So we'll be fine. You guys get it. We'll be just fine. All right, you ready to get into it? They recovered from the cows? Great. Either way, let's go for it. Anton Chekhov was a Russian playwright who, in the late 1800s, proposed a literary principle that we now call Chekhov's gun. The principle, in his own words, was this. Remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there's a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. Of course, this is one writer's principle. It's not a hard and fast rule, because I would argue art has few or no rules, but Chekhov's gun has become an enduring bit of wisdom for many a writer's sense. Of course, Chekhov didn't make it up in the pure sense. He just articulated it in a specific and helpful way. The biblical authors adhere to the Chekhov's gun principle for reasons artistic, ideological, and pragmatic. So disciples of Jesus, with their rabbi, have always believed that the scriptures, what we call the Bible, is inspired or breathed out by God, meaning in the simplest sense, God is the co-author. He inspired human authors with what to write, and they wrote it down. In this sense, there's not a detail wasted. Everything is as God intended. 
But since God is an artist, it's often clear and beautiful. But sometimes it's opaque and ugly. Sometimes it's uplifting. Sometimes it's dark and depressing. And it's all about so much more than simply do this, don't do this. The Bible is a story. When disciples of Jesus have also always believed that God did not puppeteer his human authors. He allowed their personalities, their worldviews, their agendas, their artistic flair. They have something they want to say. And so in this sense, the writing is doubly purposeful. This, again, is how God wanted it to be. But there's a pragmatic piece as well. In the ancient world, not everyone could read and write. Few people enjoyed access to ink and papyrus. So you can't be frivolous with such things. You have to write exactly what is most crucial for the text. Everything is there for a reason. Take Matthew's biography of Jesus, for example. First century account of history's most noteworthy and controversial figure. Historians and Bible scholars, whether they follow Jesus or not, all agree that the artistic craftsmanship of Matthew's gospel, as we now call it, is a staggering literary achievement. And we sometimes think of Matthew like it began on this ancient notepad for a scatterbrained biographer, and Matthew just kind of tells jumbled stories. Some are clear, some are vague, in a random, haphazard, but slightly chronological succession. And there it is, the gospel of Matthew. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Matthew's architecture of this biography is complex and sophisticated with a discernible literary format to best serve his artistic and ideological purposes. So if you've been tracking over the last, really, couple of years now, we've been teaching here at Bridgetown and at Van City, my church, through Matthew. You've already seen the way Matthew creates motifs. He raises questions and he answers them, sometimes with more questions. He draws the reader in and then frustrates them with this provocative central character, Jesus saying, perhaps, this is what it was like to be with the man. His magnetism, his compassion, his love. Also, his divisiveness and his exclusivity and his high ask and high cost. A man who said things like, come, die, and follow me. A man who says things like that needs an equally shocking biography. And Matthew is so consistently monitoring and reporting on the way people react to Jesus. Will they accept him or reject him? Do they warm to him or do they push him away? Who can persevere? At this point in the story, the answer is not the religious leaders, not even his own family at this point in the story. Many of his followers begin with passion only to walk away as the road of discipleship beneath them becomes increasingly cumbersome and difficult and uphill. And with each character, significant or fleeting, Matthew honors the Chekhov's gun principle. Each of them here for a reason, building to something. And one of the more significant instances of the principle in action is the story of a man called John the Baptizer. So tonight, let's begin in Matthew chapter 3 and do a bit of uh, backtracking. And let's read Matthew 3, beginning with verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist, like Jesus, was a figure prophesied in the Old Testament. Like Jesus, his birth was foretold by angels. The great significance of his life was known to his parents before he was even born. Even his birth was miraculous because his parents had been old and barren and not expected to have kids at all. And his role was only and always 
prepare the way for the Messiah. John, you will be the harbinger. You'll let people know. You'll go before him and herald the imminence of his arrival. But unlike the Old Testament prophets, John actually got to see this Messiah with his own eyes. And more than that, skip down to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So John understood Jesus of Nazareth to be the one for whom he had been preparing. In another biography of Jesus, John the Baptist says of Jesus point blank, behold, the Lamb of God. And then later, when Jesus begins baptizing people himself, John offers one of the Bible's most beautiful, poignant quotations. He says, he must become greater, I must become less. John knows Jesus is the Messiah. But as with many characters in the gospel stories, even John, the very person sent to direct attention to Jesus the King, is confused when Jesus is not who he expected Jesus might be. So turn over to Matthew chapter 11, just a few pages to the right. When you're there, let's read Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? So in the story, Jesus tells them, John's disciples come to Jesus and say, like, listen, John's in prison. He wants to know, are you the guy? We're not sure anymore. And Jesus says, go back and tell John all the things that I'm doing. Tell John the things that you've seen from me firsthand. It's almost like a, well, you tell me kind of answer from Jesus. And then to the crowds, he turns around, he says a bit more about John. Skip down to verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will pr prepare the way before you. Verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. To Jesus, John is the greatest, most important person in the world prior to the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. He was prophesied, promised by angels, born in a miraculous way, entrusted with one of the greatest honors in human history, and he even got to baptize Jesus himself. But Jesus wasn't acting like the Messiah, at least not the one John was anticipating. He hadn't overthrown the oppressors. He didn't seem to be preparing a revolution at all. Rome continued to rule. Israel continued to suffer under Roman oppression. Where was the king? Where was the kingdom? And his faith wavered to the degree that he had to ask, are you even him? And in Matthew's gospel, that's the last we've heard of John until tonight's story. Now, finally, let's pick up where we left off in Matthew's biography of Jesus with the opening of chapter 14. This is the only story in Matthew's gospel in which Jesus is not present. Let's read Matthew 14, beginning with verse 1. At that time... 
Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So pause for a moment. If you're the reader at this point in the story, this is something of a, a sucker punch to the stomach. Matthew, without bringing us up to date on John or his situation, reveals that John is now dead by way of inference. So you're thinking, whoa, wait, what the heck happened? Look at verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So pause again. Let's unpack some background on this character called Herod. Herod was a part Jewish ruler installed by the Roman Empire to govern the region of Galilee. For a variety of reasons, the Jewish people didn't care for him. He wasn't truly Jewish. He worked for the oppressors. It was a whole thing. But John's critique of Herod was about something really specific. Herod had actually had an affair with and then married his brother's wife, which was a direct violation of the Torah, which reads in Leviticus 18, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am Yahweh. It's simple enough. So Herod <laughs> had divorced his first wife, had an affair with his sister-in-law, and then married her. And it was such a well-known controversial act that the father of Herod's first wife had initiated a border war with Herod as a result of his betrayal. So everyone knew about it across the empire. But why is John picking on Herod about this specific thing? Interestingly, we now know from the historical records that Herod had hoped to be appointed by Rome as more than just a governor of Galilee. He wanted to be the king of all of Israel. And John knows that there's another king and it's not Herod. So he's thinking, this dude who sleeps with his sister-in-law and marries her in flagrant defiance of the Torah is going to be the king of God's people? Give me a break. So John calls him out. He's a fraud. Look at his life. Forget this dude. He's nothing like the Messiah. He's not going to be the king. So it's not just Herod's bruised ego that got John locked up. It's a threat to Herod's ambition to be appointed as a king. So to silence John the Baptist, Herod throws him in jail. Keep reading, verse 5. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Remember, he needs the favor of Israel. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod. Now, uh, birthdays in the ancient world were actually pagan celebrations. So there you go, conservative Christian culture. In with the jack-o'-lanterns, out with the birthday cakes. Make a note. <laughs> But it's true. Men would eat and get drunk and then hire a prostitute for erotic dances, lap dances, or worse. But this story is particularly twisted because the one dancing is Herod's stepdaughter, and historians believe she was likely about 12 or 13 years old. Herod actually has one messed up family tree. His father, who is the Herod from the Christmas story that commissions the slaughter of the babies, so he's already great, is married to 10 women, has 10 sons, three of whom he murders. His sister Salome had a daughter named Bernice, who then married one of Herod's 10 sons, who was also her cousin. They had a daughter named Herodias. She grew up and married her uncle Philip, with whom she had a daughter. Then she had an affair with her other uncle, who's the Herod in tonight's story, before whom she offered her daughter for erotic dances at her uncle's birthday party. So Herod is married to a woman who is also his sister-in-law and niece and is getting an erotic dance from her daughter, who is also his niece. It's not good, in other words. <laughs> very, very icky. Here's a kitten. 
And the story actually gets worse after that. So back to verse 6. On Herod's birthday, verse 6, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Verse 8 says, prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. So the dancing girl, who's likely 12 or 13, is offered a gift from an aroused drunk ruler who is also her uncle. She doesn't presumably know what to do. She goes to her mother, and her mother is seething with bitterness. She's been humiliated by John the Baptist. After all, she herself was made the subject of Herod's discrediting. She's obviously taken it personally. In fact, Mark's gospel says that she, quote, nursed a grudge against him. But remember... Herod didn't want to kill John. He wants the favor of the people, so he's distressed. What's he going to do? Verse 9, the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. In other words, it's uh, not a happy story. So once more to make you feel better, here's Gerald's smiling face. (laughs) Isn't it nice? It's also a dark slide, so it's just kind of like a floating head up there. I like that about him. (laughs) There's actually a lot here. Um, One of the, not with Gerald, there's a lot there too. (laughs) A lot of depth. One of the reasons this story stands out is because in it, two women participate in something awful, which is actually noteworthy. In the first century, women weren't exactly understood as valuable. They certainly weren't thought of as equal to men. The Gospels were written in a hyper-patriarchal culture in which women were often silenced or bought and sold, traded as goods, in many cases legally incapable of their own decision-making. And yet, get this, The four Gospels are filled with all sorts of people rejecting Jesus, common motif in all four, but not one of them records a woman outright rejecting Jesus. Instead, women are often made heroes in the Gospel stories. One scholar writes about how this makes tonight's story interesting. He says, the women in this story are unique. No woman is reported to have denied Jesus in the Gospels. In the Synoptic Gospels, it is women, not men, who wait at the crucifixion who watch at the burial, and who visit on Easter. The closest women get to being bad in the gospel is here at the beheading of John. And even here, the men are the primary villains. One of the two women is depicted as something of an accomplice, the other as a victim. And tonight's story is about rejection. It's the second in a small collection of what scholars call rejection narratives. Last time I was here, we read this interesting story in which Jesus' hometown, his own family, refused to believe in him. And in that story, it was based on a kind of rationalizing the situation. They were saying, like, wait a minute, this guy was just here. He didn't go to school. He's a stonemason. He's not a great teacher. He's Mary's kid. He's Joseph's son. He can't possibly be the Messiah, the King of Israel. Then Matthew transitions to a new kind of rejection. And this one is not the simple local villagers of Nazareth who will not welcome the kingdom because they're kind of rationalizing and excusing it away. This is power and authority who will not welcome the kingdom because of greed for position and resentment and lust. In other words, disobedience to all the things Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount are what get John the Baptist killed. There's a rejection of the scriptures, Herod's lifestyle and flagrant defiance of the Torah. There's bitterness and anger There's revenge and hatred 
There's violence, adultery, even the making and breaking of oaths. Herod had promised a gift. And just as Matthew began his biography by building out excitement, I know it feels like you probably can't remember because it's been years now, but in the beginning, it's story after story of Jesus reaching people on the margins of society and miracles and healing and reaching out to the poor and the oppressed and all sorts of unlikely people coming to faith, and there's romanticism, beauty, the thrill of the kingdom. Now Matthew is combating his own narrative with rejection after rejection after rejection. But there's also an interesting layer of foreshadowing and of Chekhov's gun. Scholars note the similarities between John and Jesus, and they're actually cousins in the story. Promised prophets, public and divisive ministries, both of them with a bold message that calls the old way of life into question, that challenges those who claim to have ultimate authority. And look what happens to John. He spoke the truth, committed no crime, was arrested and executed in a messy tangle of anger and lust for power. And then he's dead, and his disciples come and take his body and bury him. In fact, scholars note that compared to the other accounts of this same story, Matthew seems to have not only abbreviated the story, but kind of redesigned it in order to draw the reader's attention to John as a Jesus prototype. John told the truth. Herod had disobeyed the Torah, and he wasn't the true king. And because John told the truth, he was sent to prison. In prison... John began to lose hope. He sent his own disciples to Jesus to ask point blank, listen, are you him or not? Because if you are the Messiah, now would be a great time to lead an uprising. And you can hardly blame the guy. N.T. Wright puts it like this, no doubt John looked forward eagerly to the day, not long now, when Jesus would confront Herod himself, topple him from his throne, become king in his place, and get his cousin out of prison and give him a place of honor. Does Jesus, in the story, lead an uprising? No, thank you. No, he doesn't. He doesn't get John out of jail. John dies there because of a gross offer made during a drunken, incestuous lap dance. It's actually a disgraceful story. And now, knowing this, think about why Matthew placed this story here in the middle of his biography. As enthusiasm for Jesus has begun to transition to the rejection of Jesus, passive pushback is becoming hostile scorn. And now in the middle of all that, John, the prophet who prepares the way for the Messiah, is suddenly beheaded for no good reason at all. His head is carried out on a plate, and his disciples, presumably devastated, have to come gather his headless corpse just so he can have something like a proper burial. If this is what happens to the one who prepares the way, the long-promised prophet, what will happen to the Messiah himself? And to continue down that line of questioning, what will happen to Jesus' followers? And so there are two haunting takeaways built into this sad story. The first is that the kingdom message will always be an affront to the powers that be, to all powers that be. John got in trouble for pointing out that Herod, a wannabe king of the Jews, didn't even keep the Jewish law, but John's concern wasn't to make political power adhere to religious ethics. John's concern was letting everyone know this person is not the true king. Look at his life. He's not even concerned with the things of God. This prefigures Jesus, who also gets into trouble for speaking truth to power and who is executed as an enemy of the state. 
The same would prove true for future followers of Jesus down throughout church history to this day. Now, today, you and I, as modern Western disciples of Jesus, run less risk of actual persecution, let alone imprisonment. But the kingdom message is at odds with political power now as it has ever been, and it always will be. Think about it like this. All governments of the world exist in a broken world, in theory, to reduce chaos by coercing behavior, meaning the state or government's job is to make rules and to threaten you with punishment should you consider breaking those rules. Some governments do this as good as a government can do, others decidedly less so, but that's what they do. That's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God never functions with power over others, never coerces behavior with the threat of punishment. The kingdom of God is about the renewal of all things through radical self-sacrificial love, even love for enemies. Political power, by design, does not function with enemy love. So there can never be any kind of Christian government. They operate under fundamentally opposing presuppositions. And all political powers expect and require allegiance. So I have friends from other countries who have since become American citizens. They were required to take an oath that included lines like these. By the way, I'm just reading these off a slide. This is not an actual oath of any kind. Uh, <laughs> I, hear, <laughs> I hereby declare on oath, they would say, <laughs> that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all, all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, sovereignty that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, and the oath goes on and on. And some of my friends as disciples of Jesus were thinking as they were getting ready to become citizens, like, man, as a disciple of Jesus, how can I possibly say this stuff? Because the kingdom of God will always be at odds with the kingdom of political power. I'm 36 in my lifetime. I've never personally experienced a more panicked, hostile, vitriolic political landscape than the one in which you and I live today. It's insane. It's all out outrage hysteria 24-7. And there are things um, that are upsetting, for sure. And as a result, disciples of Jesus, uh, some many in justifiable distress, have begun to speak out against things like political corruption and sexism, misogyny, racism. All of these things belong to the devil and should be condemned by disciples of Jesus. And the greater truth looming over it all bears equal repeating to the right, to the left, and to any gray area in between. And that truth is this. No matter who is in political power, they are not the king. Regardless of political preferences or parties or background, whether the leaders are likable or loathsome, they are not the king. Jesus of Nazareth is always and only king, and all of our allegiance is always and only for Jesus. And yes, the New Testament encourages disciples of Jesus, listen, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with political power. Keep your head down. If and when you can, just follow the rules, get along, pray for those in power, absolutely, whether they are grotesque and corrupt or winsome and intelligent and admirable. Pray for them just as you pray for your enemies, of course. But they are not the king. And the way of the state does not work like the kingdom of God. So inevitably, the way of Jesus will, at times, grate against the way of political power. And when it does, we will choose the way of Jesus every time. 
This is part of what it means to speak and live truth before power, like John and like Jesus. And when you do, there will always be a price to pay. Now, for you and me, it will likely not be imprisonment or significant persecution, but there's still a price to pay. Last August, the far-right white nationalist rally, the whole tiki torch thing, ignited a storm of debate amongst church leaders all over the world. And in response, a well-known Southern Baptist author and speaker named Beth Moore said this on her social media. She said, quite simply, we cannot renounce what we will not name. It's called white supremacy, and it is from hell. Call it, condemn it. Now, to you and me, of course, you're like, I, at least I thought, like, right on, Beth. But it also seems a little bit like, man, duh. Yeah, I mean, you follow Jesus, that's just uh, part and parcel of following Jesus. But believe me, in Beth Moore's context, the South, as a Southern Baptist, even as a female leader among Southern Baptist men, this is a deeply subversive thing for her to say. Now, notice, Though the tweet is in clear reference to a politically charged cultural moment, what she's saying is clear, undeniable kingdom truth. You follow Jesus, you believe that. It's really that simple. And I remember seeing this and thinking, right on, Beth. But then, just beneath it, there was this response. Christians, Christians can do without your anti-Trump tweets. It does nothing but create even more division. So Beth Moore's clear kingdom statement was received as an affront to the political powers of the day. Because ultimately, Beth is proclaiming that she belongs to a higher ethic, higher authority, a truer king than the infighting of political melodrama. So I think what she was saying is, listen, take it how you will. I'm with Jesus, regardless of when and how it communicates as a rebuke to whatever political power, I'm with Jesus. And this is true on both sides of the aisle. If you live Jesus' lifestyle of enemy love and nonviolence, advocating for the oppressed, the marginalized, the refugee, the foreigner, standing against racism and sexism, then you become an affront to those on the far right. But if you live in obedience to the sexual ethic of Jesus in the Scriptures, if you embrace self-denial and submission and sacrifice, if you uphold the exclusivity of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, the sanctity of life both inside and outside the womb, you will become an affront to those on the left. Going on like Miss Moore in a place like Portland would be less subversive and more like virtue signaling. It's not dangerous. It's not subversive. It's more like a self-affirming echo chamber. <laughs> but if you go against the reframing of abortion as a social justice issue and stand against all violence against any person, friend or enemy, born or unborn, that would be less popular in a place like this. In a place like Portland, the sexual ethic of Jesus of the Scriptures won't get you retweets and pats on the back. And if you embrace it, not just as a shameful necessity, but as beautiful and good, as if Jesus actually knew what he was talking about, that might get you in trouble. If you step out of the herd and realize, hey, the popular trend, I would argue, cliche of former Christians deconstructing their faith and bailing out on Jesus isn't brave, it isn't intellectual. It isn't courageous activism. It's flaky, self-centered, and cowardly. We don't admire it. We walk with Jesus come hell or high water. The herd doesn't like that. 
Following Jesus invariably grates against the way things are. Believe me, to get yourself into this kind of trouble, you don't need a tweet or a picket sign or an argument with your uncle at Thanksgiving or whatever. You don't even need to go out of your way to bring anything up. All you have to do to find yourself at odds with the powers that be is to continue to follow Jesus faithfully. And the powers that be could be political. They could just be positions of authority in your own life. It could be the herd mentality of your city. It could be the groupthink of your entire generation. Believe me, the way of Jesus, consistently followed, will upset all of them eventually. Because in all of it, you are living into a deeply controversial truth or claim. Rather, There is only one true king, one true kingdom, and it is Jesus and the kingdom of God, and all of our allegiance is there and only there. Matthew, in the middle of this biography, is issuing a warning of what's to come both within the confines of this book and beyond it, that what happened to John will happen to Jesus, and what will happen to Jesus will happen to his apostles, all of them, and what will happen to his apostles will happen to future disciples of Jesus. And this is particularly pressing for us given the hostile, all-or-nothing, black-and-white, fundamentalist world in which we live. Author and professor Preston Sprinkle described it this way, He said, conservative fundamentalism is this, the inability to humbly listen to the other side, the other tribe, those you are told are the enemy, the posture of seeing the world in black and white, good people and bad people, and refusing to love your enemy. Progressive fundamentalism, see above, meaning it's the same dang thing. The way of Jesus is not fundamentalist conservatism. It's not fundamentalist secular progressivism, both of which are the dominant views of the day with little to no gray area. But unlike the language of American culture, the way of Jesus is not hostile. It's not belligerent. It's not demanding. It's not coercive. It's not forceful. It's not self-righteous. It's not rude. But it is steady, confident, and assured And that's enough. Believe me, that is enough. So there will be awkward questions and conversations. You will be asked to choose sides. Some will decide that you are the them in our whole us versus them culture. And tonight's text is a warning of sorts. If you're in, really in, I mean, you will cause trouble. Even though it isn't likely prison or beheading for most of us, I hope, it will be trouble. But unlike John, we know the rest of the story. We don't follow Jesus because there will or won't be trouble, but because he really is the king. He's back from the dead. He's making everything new. And on a coming day, he will bring an end to suffering and evil and death once and for all. And on that day, in the language of the scriptures, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus truly is the king. So yes, we will be at odds with the status quo once in a while. But what other way is there for us to live, those of us who have come to believe Jesus is the king? Ours is a culture of conform or die, black and white, right and wrong side of history. Sometimes the way of Jesus will bring you favor. Sometimes it sounds quite nice. Other times people won't exactly like it very much. And that's okay. Tonight, my encouragement is to embrace your status as a misfit with quiet confidence. There's no uprising to join. There's no shouting match, no Facebook rant. There's just the road of discipleship and where it takes you faithfully followed. Into favor and celebration, wonderful. 
and into trouble. So be it. Either way, Jesus goes before you, and that makes it a road worth walking. So let's invite God's Spirit to empower us as we seek to live out the way of Jesus. Would you guys mind standing up with me as we pray? Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church/give for more information. Thanks for listening.